Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Ironworks Podcast. I'm Pastor Tyler. And I'm Zach. And we are so excited to be talking to y'all today, right at the beginning of the National Football League season and the NCAA football season as well. It's the hap, hap, happiest season of all. It is. And uh, we're very excited to be football here. Football has actually come to my family, which is we're finally at the age where we have children that are old enough that we have a slight amount of extra energy, which my my wife has decided that she wants to get into football this year. Which Your I wife wants to get into she football? She has told me. Now, look, she has said... Cause, She's you becoming know, a Southern woman, Zach. I, that's exactly you. right. I'm happy. I, I'm a happy man. You know, we I, I like football. I watch football. And she's like, well, I'm I'm wanting to get into football. And I had a hilarious moment last night where she says, I'm wanting to get into football, but I'm thinking that I can't... Enjoy, I, maybe I don't like football. And I said, why do you think that you don't like football? She said, this commentary annoys the heck out of me. And I said, oh, babe, that oh, that means... Thursday night football Yeah, she, night? I said, oh, babe, I said, that means that you now like football because you can now, like the rest of us, that's, be frustrated with the name? commentary. Uh, it's like... Kirk Herb Street or I something don't remember. like that. The commentary was very bad. He was saying, "Yeah, <laughs> it was so he, bad." I think he's obviously the guy they're grooming to replace Al Michaels when he's gone because they usually get a former player and then an you know the verse verse by verse guy, the play by play guy. Uh, can you tell him Calvert Chapel friends? Yeah, uh, the the play by play guy. And now they seem to have two play by play guys. But what did he? He said something last night where I just like. It, it was almost like, you know, when you're in third grade and you had to write in complete sentences, so you would like completely <laughs> repeat, you know, what did you do on your summer? This paper is about what I did in my summer. It's like, oh, it looks like they're going to run the ball here. Yeah, it looks like they're lined up with the running back in position to run the ball here. Uh, it was it was just kind of strange. I, Tony Romo has become my new favorite commentator. Yeah. He's I, really good. I think the player He actually comment- breaks it down for I you and shows what they're going to do. I think the player commentators are always better because they've actually, they know what they're talking, they've been there and they can give you those little like insights that are more Now, fun. did you watch football back when John Madden and Pat Summerall were doing their thing? Sure. Oh yeah. Oh, that, they were yeah. the best. Oh yeah. There's actually a 30 for 30 or something or whatever on ESPN plus about uh, John Madden that was just so good. And now we're making a turducken for Christmas and that's just the way it's going to be. <laughs> so, um, yeah, yeah, but all right. So you didn't really watch much football. You said you haven't really been in too into it until um, recently. I've taken a minute out. We used to, you know, growing up, we would watch football at the house. But now when we had the kids and stuff and I just got busy and I, so I decided this year, well, not this year, last couple of years, I've been like, oh, I need to get back into football. So I'm just trying to stay, you know, just trying to stay up with it. What do you, the thing is we're kind of spoiled now is that you can, you can be into football so much easier, I feel like, because you have, you know, you can get online, you can get a quick update on all the stuff that happened. You can watch, you know, you pick your podcast of your guys that you like during the week to stay up with things. And it's it's easier to me than it used to be to stay up with. with yeah, it, which well, is nice. I was very blessed that uh, NFL Sunday Tickets sold their rights to uh the streaming service that I was already using. So I didn't oh, have yeah, to get yeah. a new one. So now I get every game, which is awesome. That and, is super nice. Uh, yeah. So I get every college game and I get every NFL game and I watch most of them. <laughs> uh, most of them going through. My wife is a, well, she's a Dolphins fan like myself because that's the rules. Um, <laughs> but her family, her dad is from Philly. So they're big Eagles fans. And uh, Devonte Smith and Jalen uh, Hertz are both former Tide guys, so mm-hmm. the Crimson Tide. So that's always exciting. And uh, every time we watch football, everybody's asking, "Did they play for Alabama? Did they play for Alabama? Like, or what? Where? When do we play Alabama? I want to watch the Dolphins play." I'm like, "No, that's not how it works, friend. It's two different <laughs> leagues." So, yeah, it's it's interesting. It's an interesting year this year because uh, over the off season we had all these running backs that were not. They didn't really have a strike. They kind of had a moment where they're like, "Hey." We're tired of not having offenses built around us. We're tired of not being drafted higher. And uh, then it was last night, the Eagles ran 
just ran up and down the field. They didn't even pass that much. I was going to say, is it just me or is there a lot more running? Which I, I like that style I of football. I think it might be. There's a lot more running going on. Here's a little conspiratorial thing for you. I think it <laughs> might be like, you know, the plan. Like this is the narrative. Like the league wants to go this way. So I'll Uh-oh. bet you like Madden, the next Madden's going to have a running back on the front. Tyler it's going to have Derrick Henry fixed, or guys. something. No, it's not <laughs> fixed. If it was fixed, it'd be a lot more interesting. You don't get a boring Super <laughs> yeah. Bowl when it's fixed. It's very true. Although, you know, the gambling coming into that, I'm sure has just made things much more secure. Oh, uh, <laughs> but I, I I would be totally up for that. I love watching it. Like mm-hmm. that's, that's what the guy said last night. He said, I know it hasn't been the most interesting game and Everybody wants to see Hertz drop back and throw long passes, but it was just a lot of defense and a lot of running. And but you know that's a great game too. I'm, I'm like, who are you talking to? Yeah, what focus group were you in where a, a bunch of like normies said, well, they weren't a lot of big plays, or maybe it's guys from ESPN coming in and saying, hey, we need highlights. We need more highlights. Uh, but I think to I me, thought it was great. It I've, was a lot of we've fun. Had I love a defensive years, battle. Yeah, we've had ten years or more of like drop back and bomb, you know, 600 yard, you know, highlight reel shootouts. Like I think to me, there's, there's just as exciting to see guys get around the corner and rip 30 yards and like have that be a big part of the game. How much how, fun is it to watch to somebody edge. like watch Derrick Henry run somebody over? Yeah, it's great. That's amazing. I, I love that. Anyway. So same thing with the NBA. They do that where everybody just wants to see offense. It's like people that don't really like basketball maybe want right. to see offense. People that watch sports but in the top 10. You see those see. when you get into the playoffs, it's always so much better because everybody's actually bearing down right, and right. like throwing hard fouls and stuff. So, yeah. you know. But anyway, that's football season has come and Liberty has won their first game. Yeah, Liberty, and, uh, Liberty 2-0. And oh yeah, 2-0. Yeah, and, oh. yeah. and they play Buffalo uh, tomorrow, actually, at the time of recording. Uh, or today, actually, the day that it launches is going to be today. So I uh, hope they're doing well and I hope that the tide is rolling. It's actually kind of nice. College football is nice because you can root for two or three different teams and they're really never going to play each other. And right. it's a totally different world. But we could talk about realignment. But actually, I think <laughs> what we're going to talk about today, we're actually going to get into our subject. Today, we're going to continue our series about the Trinity. And this is shaping up if uh, current trends continue to be a seven-part series on the Trinity. Uh, we talked about, first of all, in the first week, defining what that means, that Christians are Trinitarian. We believe in one God in three persons, one God in Trinity and Trinity and unity. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are God. They are one God. And that's what Christians believe and have believed since the beginning. And we went through what the Bible has to say about that, how we arrive at the definition of the Trinity, not through theological navel-gazing. We arrive at it through the respectful and careful study of the scriptures. So when you read your Bible, this is the conclusion that we are to come to. So then last time we talked about what is called the ontology of the Trinity. And these are really the two parts of how to understand the Trinity, the ontology and the economy. Sometimes it's called the nature of God and the work of God. And uh, the ontology, meaning that God is one, And the three persons of the Godhead are equal to one another. So the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are not greater than or less than one another. And what distinguishes them from one another are their relationships of origin. That the Father does not proceed and is not begotten by any. He has life in himself, as Jesus said. The Son 
is begotten, eternally begotten by the Father. Jesus said the Father has granted to the Son to have life in himself. And the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. And that does not mean that the Father is first place, the Son is second, and the Spirit is third. That is heresy. We don't believe that. Nor does that mean that there was a time where there was just the Father and then there was the Son. These are eternal relationships. We're Mm -hmm. talking about a being that if you want to, if you are maybe more of a nerdy person like myself, I guess, if you're familiar with the Lovecraftian idea of the incomprehensible divine, it's mm. it's a piece of that, that mm. when you start talking about God, you can't really use categories that we talk about. And, and I'm not saying Lovecraft was right. I'm just saying that that aspect of the differentness of God yes. is, is well identified in in his writing. So, uh, Zach, I mean, that's kind of the review of where we've been. I mm-hmm. mean, any any comments on that or what anything that struck you as we've been going through it well i just think the big thing that we've been taking away from it and we'll, you'll keep seeing this as we go through is this idea of that there needs to be a balance in the way that you discuss the trinity we keep talking about these guardrails right where it's it, the, so much of the doctrine of the trinity is almost kind of saying well it's not this you can't mm-hmm. say this and then you go over here well don't don't say that though yeah, that's and, the that's the famous via negativa of theology that you find out what is not true about god in order to arrive at what god mm-hmm. is and that's kind of where we're at with a lot of this is that you're you're identifying some guardrails to say okay well that's a, that's not good we can't think that and and in the middle we talked about how as especially as you discuss it not so much we're not arguing for some sort of like squishy like it doesn't really matter idea no it totally matters it totally matters <laughs> what we're arguing for is because it matters so much as you discuss it, we need to be kind and charitable to one another because we know that we're trying to get to this place that's very, very important. And sometimes in describing that or or, or apprehending that or, or explaining it, it, we can kind of bounce around a little bit in this middle part and say, well, it's, it's kind of, it's not quite like this. And we need to allow, uh, you know, each other to do that. The goal isn't to keep floating around. The goal is to get to what, you know, the best possible understanding of what scripture holds for us uh, concerning the Trinity. Right. It's too many people, especially in internet theology, like the goal is to dunk on somebody. The goal is to find somebody saying it wrong and appropriately label them a heretic. That, you know, that's, that's not the heart of discipleship. That's not the heart Mm. of peace. That's not being eager to maintain the unity of believers. So we know what the truth is, but we also, in our first episode, talked about how because the Trinity is such a serious thing and because there have been so many major heresies involving the Trinity and because if there's going to be a heretic guaranteed, he does not hold an Orthodox view of the Trinity. Mm. Just, just guaranteed. Most false teachers, all of them, don't think the right things about Jesus or God or the Holy Spirit. That's kind of the whole thing. But because it's that serious, sometimes people are afraid to talk about it. Where yeah. pastors are afraid to preach on the Trinity because they're afraid they might say the wrong thing. They don't feel comfortable. And there's going to be some, you know, theology wonk in the pulp in the pews is going to come up and say, <laughs> "You know that you preached this ism from the you know 1300s that no one knows about anymore, right?" And and we got to be charitable enough with each other mm. to have these conversations, to have these discussions to maybe misspeak and correct ourselves or to use illustrations. Many people, they love to talk about all the illustrations of the Trinity are just not sufficient. Okay, but are they helpful? (laughs) Like, does it help Mm. a little child to think of God as like a three-leaf clover? Like, we know that, okay, that's not exactly what it is. Yeah, but it's helpful for a child. And if you're trying to explain to somebody, you know, how these things are distinct, but they're one, you know, the whole analogy of water, ice, and steam It can be helpful, and we need to be able to talk about the Trinity and preach about the Trinity and draw life lessons from the Trinity without being afraid that we've somehow undermined our Christianity. Mm, That's a good point, yeah. 
Yeah, that's. I, I think that keeps people from learning about it. And I think oh, that yeah. there's a whole wing of the interweb that's just like, ha, got him, you know, on, <laughs> on the Trinity. And that's what they want to do. So yeah, we don't want to do that. So keeping all that in mind, we're going to begin today, talk about the economy of the Trinity. So Zach, the ontology, the word ontos in Greek means being. So we're mm-hmm. talking about the nature of God. What do we mean when we say the economy of the Trinity? We could say like the work of the Trinity or what the Trinity does, the actions of how the Trinity uh, behaves, I guess would be a fair word. Like basically, the works. The, yeah, the works, the things that God is doing and, and how those things are sometimes carried out differently by the different persons of the Trinity. Yeah, that's it. The economy is the works. The ontology is the nature. Uh, economy is, it comes from a Greek word, oikonomia. Oikos means house. Mm-hmm. Namas means law. And, you know, house law comes together. It's the idea of administration or the management of a household. You, uh, that's, that's just important to know. So we're talking about how God manages his house. We're talking about the works that are done. And uh, that's what we mean by the economy of the Trinity. So when we say the economy of money, we're talking about how money works. We're talking about how it flows. We're talking about the principles and the laws of what it means. It's not the ontology of money. The ontology of money is, you know, the rate of exchange. It's I I give you this and you give me that. That's not the economy itself. The economy is how does it work and where are the how much money do the poor have and what are the interest rates and how is it moving? That's what we mean when we say the economy of the Trinity. And you said said it just right that there are differences that the different persons of the Godhead uh, in what they do. And just as there are distinctions in their origin, there's also distinctions in what they they do. So, uh, but even already, it's important for us to throw some cautions out there about what we're not saying when we (laughs) talk about these things. Uh, So, for example, I just said there are distinctions in the ontology of the Trinity and there's distinctions in the economy of the Trinity. What you do not want to do is read into the economy of the Trinity changes and differences in the ontology of the Trinity. Let me explain what I mean. If we read, for example, of the son being in submission to the father while he's on the earth, that does not necessarily imply that the son is eternally submissive to the father, Mm -hmm. nor when it says the spirit drove Jesus out into the wilderness. Does that mean that the spirit ranks above Jesus in the ontology? No. We know that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are one. They are equal to one another. They, they, they do not rank higher than one another. What distinguishes them is their relationships of origin. So when we talk about the economy, what they do, this is a, a, a separate discussion to have. So, I mean, that's, I think that's the easiest trap to fall into with this is we say, since Jesus was sent to die by the father, that means necessarily the father is greater than the son, but that's, that's a mistake, Zach. Yeah, it is. And I, I would, I, I think... I'm not 100%, 100% sure, but I think that a lot of the problems that come up when you're discussing salvation theology, so like you hear a lot of people, you know, just yell all day about, oh, this terrible idea of, you know, um, uh, what's, I'm sorry, help me out with the atonement theology that people are very upset with now. The uh, I don't uh, live on Twitter, man. Substitutionary you know, so. atonement. Like some people are very <laughs> like, that's just terrible that, that God would, you know, sacrifice his son. That's like divine child abuse and they're so upset with it. Well, I think you would probably understand it a little bit better, that theory of the atonement, if you understood more correctly 
how the Trinity works. Yeah, for in, sure. In that it's not, this is not some sort of, well, well, you know, God, the father sent the son and the son had to go. And, and he, th- then he's just getting, you know, punished and harmed by his father. That's, that's not at all what's going on here. And in no, saying that, that you've, mis- <laughs> you've misunderstood, right? You've, in the, it's a misunderstanding of the interaction between the economy and the ontology of the Trinity. Jesus, right. the, the economy is different. He, yes, the Jesus is being sent by the father and he is submitting himself to the father's will, but to, to make it somehow that as if there's some sort of fight between them or somehow that's lowering Jesus in status or in being from the father. Yeah, that, that would be messed up, except that's not what it is. It is because they are, they are one. So, so therefore the, the father is equally, you know, suffering and, and dying because he's God there. There's no, div, it's dividing. Right. So yeah, this yeah, is why this these is things important. become important, right. Is because you have to correctly understand how these things interact so that you don't start getting tripped up um, into like a little weird theological cul-de-sac. Um, and that's why, you know, if you, if you yeah. guys wonder, I know we're on what, we're on episode three now of, of four, or four of, you know, several more about the, the Trinity. And sometimes if you guys wonder, well, why are we all talking about this? Well, cause it really does, you know, have big impacts. Understanding how God works and who God is changes a lot of things about reading the Bible. Right. And there's a whole lesson that we'll return to at the end, but what you can draw from this is that what you do does not change who you are mm-hmm. because that's not yes. what happens to God and right. that's not how he's created us. And there's a whole lesson for us to learn on submission and things. But you have to say that word when, when you're talking about the Trinity, similar to how when you, you need to be careful not to uh, divide the substance or confound the persons when you're talking about the threeness and the oneness of God. They're both true at the same time. And sometimes you need to kind of clarify, today we're talking about the threeness of God or right now we're talking about the oneness of God. Um, it's unfortunate how often the oneness of God gets lost in the, the studies of the mm-hmm. Trinity, but that is, you know, you all, you keep coming back to that, that God is one, Deuteronomy 6, 4. But also, uh, there are things that we know about God, and sometimes you need to answer the question, is this in the economy or the ontology of the Trinity? Because those, those things are different. And theologically, and what the Bible teaches, we've got to remember those things, that many of the times, many times the Son, especially during his life on the earth, the Son is, is walking in submission mission and and really humiliation before the father and the spirit and even before men so he's going to say a lot of things like the you know uh the father is greater than i am and, and that sort of statement that he, what he's talking about is this state in which i'm in right now where i am submitting to my father yeah he's he's greater than me and i'm submitting to him so, but then to read into that and say therefore jesus is not really god or he's a lesser form of god or he's not the same as the father it's you you this mm. is those are economical questions the economical trinity not not the ontological trinity. So uh, let me give you a couple examples of what we're talking about. We're going to go through each person today, uh, each person of the Trinity and what their specific role is and what they do, which is going to be a lot of fun, I think. That'll be the bulk of what we do today. But let's talk about two major issues that will help us illustrate this. God is one. There's only one God. We all know that. God is also three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We know that they are equal to one another, but they are not the same as one another. They rank equally to one another. But they also do different things. Let's give two great examples of this. The first one is creation. Let's talk about creation. The Bible talks about each person of the Trinity creating the world. Each person Mm -hmm. of the Trinity is given credit for creation. And there, if you look at it, kind of looked at differently. So the first one, Zach, you know, Genesis chapter one, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? That is very clearly giving credit to the father, right? Mm -hmm. And that's typically what we think that the father 
is the one who made the worlds. Right. Right. You also have John chapter one, where it talks about Jesus. Mm -hmm. And it says that all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Right. So he so, seems to be pretty active there as well. Yeah. Now then you've also got verses like Job 33 verse 4 where he says, The Spirit of God has made me and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. And the Spirit was hovering over the face of the waters. Right there you see that the all three persons of the Godhead are given credit for creating the world. Now that might seem strange because you'll read John 1 where it says, he made all things and nothing was made without him. So you go, okay, so who made the world? Well, it was Jesus. Jesus made the world. But then you got Genesis chapter one, where it says, God, the father in the, is the implication, created the heavens and the earth. Then you got Job saying, the spirit made me. And you've got you know, a spirit hovering over the face of the water. So the, the three persons of the Godhead all made the world. And yet you have the one God who's responsible for all this. So Zach, you kind of get a sense that there's, there's, triple participation in the works of God. Right. And that, and, that, and again, that's something that, and that, isn't that so cool that there's both the oneness and the threeness expressed there? Who created the world? Well, God, right? Yeah. But well, <laughs> yeah. How, how did that happen? Well, God, the father was, you know, there overseeing and, and, and working and moving. And then Jesus was, you know, Im immediately present in all of that and doing this work. And then the, the spirit was hovering over the face of the waters. So they're all, all three. It's not like as if one person of the trinity is doing the work and the others are managing or observing they're all pr present all working there's the oneness and the threeness you are, are both part of that process which i think is is really really cool right so you've got you know if you look back at genesis 1 god created the heavens and the earth god the father says we're making the world he says, let there be light. And we know that that word is jesus that's the uh, connection that john draws out so jesus the son is there being spoken of by the Father, you might say. And then there's the Holy Spirit hovering over the face of the waters. That there's a all three of them are participating in this one act. Here's the second one, and this might be a little more clear for you. The resurrection. Zach, who raised Jesus from the dead? Well, well God did. <laughs> yes, God did. Of course uh, he did. Yeah. But, but which the, person of the Trinity was responsible for that? I think we would we would most usually probably default to saying it was the Father. Right. right? Well, we, that's we, right. We because Romans 10, 9 says, You confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Right. However, if you look back in Romans chapter 8, verse 11, it says that the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, that it was the spirit of Mm. who raised Jesus from the dead. But then you've also got Jesus back in John chapter 10, verse 18. He says, no one takes my life I from me, it. but I have the authority to take it up again. Mm -hmm. This charge I have received from my father. So e each person of the Godhead is responsible for raising Jesus from the dead. That goes back to perichoresis, which we talked about last time, that the father is in the son and, and also the spirit and, and in and out, right? That's what we talked about last time, the mutual indwelling of the Godhead. What this teaches us is that God's will is being done, but each of the three persons of the Godhead have a part to play in the work that God is doing. And we can see that as we talk about it, they are different. There are different roles that are being taken and are being played. And that sometimes, guys, even these roles are interchangeable. And that there is a regular pattern, but God has no problem in breaking the pattern as the, the three do the one work of God. So we're going to break this down and, and see this. And uh, this just really helps us in our worship of the Lord, I think. It's, I think yes. it would be less... Yes. Uh, 
it'll be less maybe not hostile, just less dogmatic <laughs> today. We can just say, look, that they do different things, and that's why we praise them for the things we do. Mm. And uh, you know, a lot of those great old hymns, like we'll have a verse about the Father, and then a verse about the Son, and then a verse about the Holy Spirit. And mm. uh, I love finding those those Trinitarian things that in there. But um, yeah, God's got His will, but each member of the Godhead is involved. I don't like saying member; that's probably not correct because it sounds like they're joining a club. Uh, <laughs> each person, person of the Godhead, yeah, right? Yeah, and I didn't read that somewhere; it just felt wrong in my mouth. But <laughs> but let's talk about the Father. Okay, so there are three distinct persons of the Trinity, distinct in their relationships of origin. And Zach, remind us: the Father's relationship of origin to the other two is what? So the Father is beginning is is the is the relationship of origin, right? Where the Father begets the Son, and He sends out the the spirit yeah he spirits right so there you spirits go that's a better word yeah so in the words the, the father is the the origin mm-hmm. if you like like he's he's not begotten he's not spirited but he is beginning and spirating so he's kind of that point of origin um right. and, and this is what we talked about last time with the, the what was the the remind us of the long important sentence that we had from the church father where he's talking about well the, you know one of those it's like one of that di- the triangle diagram oh, right. explaining you know this yeah the father is he's not begotten and he's not spirited by any he right. eternally begets the son and he eternally be- spirates the spirit right and then the son he is eternally begotten of, right. of the father and he's also eternally participating in spirating yeah. the, the spirit you know? I think the best verse on that is when Jesus said in John that the father has life in himself and he has granted to the son to have life in himself also so that it's He's, it's that constant flow from the Father to the Son that has been eternally happening. It's not mm. something that, that started and is never going to stop. That's just the, you know, the relationship that they have. So what is the Father's role? What are the actions that the Father takes? And here's a little point that we might return to. is When we talk about the Trinity, many people are, are very uncomfortable with us talking about uh, the, the economy of the Trinity as affecting the ontology. I am too. You don't want to say because the father is usually in charge. That's how we know that the father, you know, ranks ahead. It's like mm. that's that's not good. But I do think you can you can hold that loosely, and we say the father's uh, rank, shall we say, not the rank, the father's origin, the his relationship of origin, meaning as the one who begets and the one who spirates, right. is reflected in the economy of the Trinity. Sure. Like you can see that that kind of relationship is reflected in what he does. So what does the father do? I think the primary thing is, is he's the authority in the economy of the Trinity. He's the decider. He's the final word. He has the final say in what the Trinity is going to do. And I know others that really don't like the idea of saying that the father, the son, and the spirit have different wills from each other, to which I would then ask, then how do you understand when Jesus said, Mm -hmm. not my will, but yours be done? I don't think their wills are in conflict with one another. But I think that they are they are whole, complete persons, right. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They're not and, aspects, right? right. And, as, and I mean, I'm using aspect in like a theological, because aspect is like yes. an Eastern religion term, meaning like uh, Jesus isn't an avatar of the Father. No. You know, just kind of blankly reflecting the Father's opinions and will. Jesus is a person, a full person, like yes. you're a person. In fact, Distinct more, from the Father and yeah, the Son. In fact, more than you're a person. And we would lose... Right, we would lose. We we would be conflating, you know, blending the Trinity if we would say, "Oh, well, Jesus could never could never have a different will or opinion than the Father." Well, that means that he's not a real person. Yeah, that's when you start to uh, confound the persons a right. little bit. And uh, I I understand the point that some are trying to make sure. there, but it's it's you gotta it's you have to work with what the biblical data 
give you. And that's what Jesus said, not my will, but yours. And Mm. says the Holy Spirit gives to each one severally as he will. So, but the father is the authority. He's the decider, you might say, that that Jesus and the spirit come to the father and say, not my will, but yours be done. And this is reflected in the terms that we use to describe God the father as the king and the Lord and the one that rides on the thundercloud. I mean, father itself is, and this is why, you know, I think it's so important that you bring out that point that we have to... We have to stick with what the Bible says and not what is easy for us to understand. And I, I, without descending into a whole rabbit hole here, I think very often I have found people who tend to really struggle with these concepts of the economy versus the ontology of the Trinity. There are also people who really struggle with the idea that God could be sovereign and yet human beings could have a will at all. Mm. And I think you just need to like, this is an, you just need to wrap this up and save this as you study theology. You will come across things that the Bible indicates both are true that seem to your mind to be in conflict. And and what we need to learn is if the Bible indicates both are true, we can't make it easy on ourselves by just discarding one. We have to allow them to be in tension and say that right there is a paradox. It seems that God is bigger and and more more unique and more perfect a being than I am. And therefore, God can have three persons with full wills, full intellects, full minds, but who are constantly in harmony with one another. There's never a dispute within the Trinity. And that's not because they only have one mind. It's because they have three. Well, I mean, mind, I guess, would be even the wrong word as I'm thinking about this. They, they have three. They can each be a person and yet always be in harmony. Now, yeah, that wouldn't be true of you and me and a third person, Tyler. Why? Because we're imperfect. But our imperfection can't be used to judge whether it's possible for God to have that. Do, yeah. do you see what I'm saying? So yeah, it's, absolutely. It's, it's important. And, and what I sorry to get back to my original point. So when we're talking about God as father. Even within that, and this may not be a popular point anymore because we don't talk about these things in this way, but that's our problem. God as Father is we are we are talking about Him that way because it it, it is His wording that He's chosen to give us, so we can understand His role. Part of His role within the Trinity is the role of the leadership, the authority, the protection, yep. the headship. The the you know we're talking about the house law. Well, in the house law, the Father is going to be the one who has the final word. Who ultimately in many ways is the first one to sacrifice is the first one to you know to bear the cost of things that all of those should be included in the way that we think about god the father right so give me some examples of like where the father does this like where do we see him doing fatherly authoritative things and i you i guess i'll answer my own question here the first one i think of is in in judgment mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and judgment don't always think of judgment negatively we always you know judgment is neutral Judgment is depending on what you've done. Mm-hmm. We always think of it badly because we're sinners. But when God judges and ex- executes justice on the world, that's him acting as the father, acting as the, the father. And you see him uh, sending the prophets. We see him sending the flood upon the earth. Mm-hmm. We see him showing mercy. We see him uh, delaying judgment. We see him bringing it on. We like That's what the father is doing is he's constantly evaluating and and. You know, we see the sun participating in that too. You got a lot of really cool passages where the angel of the Lord is down, like scouting things I was out actually say, for the I th- father, I right? The, the so stor- that the father can make an informed decision right. on how to judge, because that is his job is to more or less sit in the chair mm. and be the guy making the decision. And again, people don't like this because they they interpret it according to human terms. I think sometimes, and so they want to take away. But God has chosen in the way He operates to do this. 
he has chosen to allow there to be some differences in the way that the, the members of the Trinity, not members, I guess the persons of the Trinity operate. So I think Sodom is a great biblical ex example of this, like you were talking about. If you carefully read the, the narrative, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, what, what you're seeing happening is God the Father says, I will see if the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah is as bad as the report that has come to me. Then we see the angel of the Lord, right? The pre-incarnate Jesus sent out by the father. The father's sitting in judgment in the, in the heavenly council saying, okay, bring back to me a report and tell me if this is deserving of my judgment. And so therefore the angel of the Lord comes down and he has this dialogue with Abraham. And he says, well, and Abraham starts bartering with the angel of the Lord and saying, well, but what if there's five righteous people? And then there's angels that are sent to Sodom and say, well, we didn't find five righteous people, and this is the behavior. And then there's a return. It's maybe not indicated specifically in the Bible, but it's clear that then there's a return and a report given to God the Father who decides, well, there have not been five righteous people found, and therefore I'm going to execute this judgment right. on Sodom. Yeah, that's that's the Father's role, is he sits up in the heavens, and uh, which means in making judgments and in making decisions, uh, let's look at creation. Mm. The Father's role would have been Let's make a world, mm -hmm. you know, like or, right, or right. executing. Yes, we shall make a world. The sun fits into this too. And obviously there's a perichoretic relationship. But as we talk about these distinctions, the father said, let's make a world. Let's have something rather the than plan, nothing. The plan, the vision, yeah, right? that kind that, of fatherly, like it could be like this. Let's have it be like this. Yeah, and it's it's also not even just judgment negative. It's the father's mm. love. God so loved the world that he gave his only right. begotten son. It was the father's love to make the decision. We've got to redeem these people because he was so overwhelmed with mm -hmm. love and affection for those that had rebelled against him. The thing we're going to have to do is you, son, are going to have to go down and die in their place. Mm -hmm. And that was proper that the son would do that because of his relationship to his father. So the power, anytime we talk about the power and, and like all these things, we talk about the power of the spirit all the time, right? But when we talk about the power, the authority, the judgment, the love, the the big picture kind of stuff, that's that's God our Father. And even in the Bible, when we default and we say God, typically we're referring to the Father. Even uh -huh. Jesus, yeah. who talks yeah. about, I'm going to pray and worship my Father and the Spirit who gives glory to God the Father and plums the depth and brings us the knowledge of God the Father. There's that that highest ranking, the, the typical way you think about God, that's the Father's prerogative. Mm. And that doesn't mean that the Son doesn't participate in that because the Son is in the Father. And right. it doesn't mean the Spirit doesn't participate in that because the Spirit is also in the Father and the Father is in the Spirit. When you have an encounter with the Spirit, he's bringing the Father to you. That's what Jesus right. said would happen. And, and so when, if, you, yes, if you're hearing right. this and you're being uncomfortable, like, oh, no, no, you can't talk. Well, look, all of these things we're discussing have included in them the fact that God is one. So when the Father sits in judgment, the, the Son is also in judgment. The Spirit is also in judgment. They're not separated as if the mm -hmm. it's not like the Father saying, now you all go away and I'm going to sit here and judge. That's not that's not how it is. No, they're, they're <laughs> united. But also there is we can't get rid of the fact that there is also at some difference in, at some level where the father is doing the judgment and, and he's sending out the spirit to look and, and determine He's sending out the son to bring a report. That is how the Bible reports this to us and tells us what it is. So don't 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 be so afraid of dividing that we confuse. Don't be so afraid of confusing that we divide. You know what I mean? Like yeah. we have to allow there to be that 
um, we talked about the dance almost that's going on all the time of, well, look at how they're always yeah, doing the flower this. box. Yeah. They're, like they're, there's always this constancy of both and yes. always happening. It gets you know? me, it gets me really wrapped oh, yeah, up. It's so, you know? it's so cool. So think of, before we move on from the father, you know, you think, I think the best way to think about God, the father is to think of how you see him in the book of revelation. He's seated ah. on the throne. That's the reference to God that the symbolic book of Revelation uses is the one who is seated on the throne. And that's throne. throughout scripture whenever there's right. a vision of, you've talked about, you've taught this really awesomely sometimes in, in sermons where there's a unique vision of God's throne that's repeated throughout scripture because each prophet, whoever had the ability to see this vision, he sees seeing the same thing. Yeah. And they're always seeing. Yep. Moses and the 70 elders and then Ezekiel right. at the riverside and then John in the book And Isaiah or no? Is it different? Isaiah Partly, but Part, it's, it's yeah. partial compared to the other. But they're both. The but they're two. all seeing. In other words, what, yep. what is what are they seeing? They are seeing the throne of God the Father. Yes, who who is seated on that throne, receiving you know adoration, receiving authority, yep. you know, receiving, receiving all those things. That's what you're seeing, and that's why Jesus says, "I I came." that God may be glorified. I'm doing these mm. things. That's why yeah, we do uh, so that God, the father right, right. may receive glory. That's, that's, the, that's a King man. Receiving right. glory is a kingly thing. Oh, King would I, be a good, yeah, that's a good yes. maybe other comparison as well. That we The King, the Lord, the master, mm. the God, the one who rides in thunder clouds and smoke and, mm-hmm you know, has full of love, but also full of truth and justice. And the one that you can't look upon as, as Moses found, that's God, the father. And that's how the Bible portrays him. His job is to be the authority, the man in charge. Now, as I said, I believe you can see this reflected in the father's relationship of origin. It is not that Mm. we're going to get into the, the breakdown a little bit here, but just to give you a little tease here, uh, it, the, the father is not, you know, the one in charge because that's how he's always been. The father is the authority because that's how the economy works. And there are times where he gives that authority even over to his son or mm-hmm. delegates authority to his spirit. But when you consider that the father is neither begotten, he's not made and he's not spirited and the others proceed or are begotten by him, it is only just, it's fitting and right. Can we just say it like that? Mm. It's fitting and it's right that in the economy of the Trinity, the father is the one that usually takes that first and highest place and that the others are in submission to, not subordinated to in terms of rank, but in willful, gleeful, celebratory submission to God the father. Uh So when you typically think of God, that's who he is. Mm. It's God the father. So you said king. So yeah. why don't we talk about Jesus a little bit? Because somebody's hearing that and say, wait a minute, isn't Jesus king too? Yes. Oh, I'm so glad That's you a very asked good that. Point. <laughs> right. Let's talk about the son. Mm. Let's talk about the son. And and his name is Jesus. That's the name that the son of God, the logos, would be another more theological word that he took when he came on the earth. So I'm going to use those interchangeably. There's some books, Zach, just in, in, in a 90-minute podcast. we got time for rabbit trails. <laughs> but there are some books that really, like, they, they want you to say Christ or they want you to say, the you know, the son and and not use the name Jesus because they say Jesus is Why? the name that he took when he came on the earth. It wasn't that he had the name Jesus in eternity past. I just kind of see that as really boring. And, That's a It's right, nice but it's like whatever. It's it's Jesus our Lord. At the name yeah. of Jesus, every name okay, will bow, it. right? Yeah. So just, you know, eh. the, the man Jesus was more than the man Jesus. Mm-hmm. He was all this. So That's why I'm going to use that just interchangeably here. So what is the son's role in the Godhead? What is his role? Well, since the father is the one who makes those big decisions, Andrew Murray is the one who uh, first pointed this out to me. If you've ever read With Christ in the School of Prayer, he 
makes a great point of this, that the son's job is to ask and receive from his father. That's one thing that the son does. Mm. He's the one who asks and receives from his father. That he says, you know, father, I've asked this of you and I know that you always hear me. The son is, every time we see the son in the, in the word, he is performing some kind of intercession before the father. Even the whole incarnation and, and death on the cross was an act of incarnate of, sorry, uh, intercession before God. Uh-huh. So yes, yes. you see him going down to Sodom as as to determine what the will of the Lord ought to be. Or you see him in, in Zechariah chapter 1 crying out, How long, O Lord? The angel of the Lord cries out. Uh, that the, the son is the one who intercedes and asks and receives. So if God is the one that said, Yes, we shall have a world, you can see it as the son was the one that said, Lord, Father, wouldn't it be wonderful if we had a world? And then the father says, Yes, there will be a world mm-hmm. and uses the son uh, to actualize that. So there's that that re- very father and son kind of relationship there's that they have. We, the, the reason God has given us these terms, it, it's, you know, and you, there's this sense almost that he's always acting on behalf of his father. Does that make sense? Like where he, Oh, absolutely. The, words, he, he said, I don't do anything unless I see the father do it first. Right. I and don't because, say anything unless I hear the father say it first. And remember, because he said, I and the father are one. It is possible. What is impossible for you, a human being who is unipersoned, right? You are one one person. <laughs> it's impossible <laughs> for you to be truly united with the will of someone else. Even the closest person you've ever, you know, the closest you've ever been to a person, your, your wills are not fully united. But it's possible for Jesus Christ to be fully united with the will of his father, meaning that their, their wills are both 100% yes. turned up to 11, and yet they will always be united. They will always work they will in concert they will always think the same and say the same and want the same thing so when jesus is representing his father in other words when he let's say in the case of sodom and gomorrah when the angel of the lord is sent down to sodom when he sees the aberrant ridiculous behavior his response in his heart his decision we must judge this is never he's never going to take that decision back to his father and have the father say no actually what you need to think about is it's always going to be a response of yes, I make that so. Like yes, what you have said is right. Go do that because they're both united. They have which this, is why to make Andrew Murray's point when you come and pray in Jesus's name, uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> that's why John says that we know we've received what mm-hmm. we ask of him because we're we're speaking in Jesus's name. That that's his job. And if it really, I mean, I think another way to describe the son's work is representation. Mm. His job, you know, some of you got excited. Not that kind of representation, okay? <laughs> Not talking about like cartoons and, you know, having every race represented. I'm talking about Jesus as the representation of the Father mm. to the world. Consider when the angel of the Lord, the commander of the armies of heaven, which we believe to be a Christophany, was standing before Joshua. He's the commander of heaven's host. He's representing God mm-hmm. and his will uh, to Joshua. The, As a commander. The, the, commander. Words, he's the, the father has said, I send you with my authority to command my armies. Yes. Even in that, you can see this interaction of, I'm giving you all of this authority. When you make a decision, it's my decision. I'm ratifying it. But I'm also kind of it's my authority that I'm giving to you, you know? Yeah. And if Jesus is the word of God, I mean, what better representation of the will of the father is there than the word of somebody, Mm -hmm. right? So the father says, let there, you know, let's have a world Mm. says the father. And so he says, son, what do you got? He says, let there be light. 
That's the word spoken, mm-hmm. that the light came into being, that he's there to represent and speak for the Father. He's also called the wisdom of God, that he comes and he brings these things to the people. When that's, that's the son's job. And the greatest and highest version of this, and in fact, our greatest demonstration of the economy of the Trinity is the incarnation. The incarnation. I've got to read you from Philippians chapter 2 here, which is the passage to study in addition to uh, John chapter 1 on the incarnation. It says, have this mind among yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, that although he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or a thing to hang on to at all costs. So he was in the form of God and he was equal with God. So there's your, you know, your defense of the Trinity right there. But what did he do? Here's the economy of the Trinity. Knowing all that in verse six about the ontology of the son, verse seven, in his economy, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The ultimate representation of God happened, the execution of God's will happened when the word was made flesh and Jesus Mm. became a man, which is just fitting that the son would be the one that would represent God the father to the world, that he would walk among us, he would live among us, he would set aside his divine privileges, which is, this is a a great, uh, a great time to talk about this incarnation and we'll do it more next time here. But uh, when we say, well, when Jesus was on the earth, how much of, of he was God and how much of him was was human? Well, he was 100% yes. of both. <laughs> yeah. But Philippians tells us that he emptied himself. That word in Greek is kenao, and we get the word kenosis from that, which means the emptying. And some people say we shouldn't use the word kenosis because we shouldn't talk about Jesus emptying himself, even though, I mean, that's the word Paul chose, so we should be okay <laughs> with it. Yeah. But they say, well, he, he never stopped being God. You're right. But in the economy of the Trinity, he stopped functioning as the son of God for 30 some years. He ontologically remained the son, but he was not walking around. Here's the the easiest way to ease into this idea. Mm. Jesus was not omnipresent during his time on the earth. Mm. He limited himself. He limited himself to be in one place at one time. I would also argue he limited his power as well. His omnipotence. Now he said, Jesus did lots of miracles. Yes. When? When the Holy Spirit had come upon him Mm -hmm. to be the model for you and for me. The knowledge of Jesus. I believe Jesus was not, was he still omniscient? Yes. But I do not believe he was accessing his omniscience while on the earth because it would have have been fitting for him to fully endure the suffering of humanity in that way so that Jesus Christ could bear our sins. That he, in the economy of the Trinity, was acting as a man, totally. But in the ontology of the Trinity, he remained human. Zach, that's such an, this is why this theology matters, is you can have the fullness of one point while not going over the boundaries into something well, else. Also, there's a, a lot of the heresies of the early church were, were around the person of Jesus and misunderstanding who he was in the incarnation. And, and it's actually very important. You know, it's, it's actually not that cool to have a savior who um, hasn't undergone what you've undergone. He's not that impressive of a savior if... Oh yeah, well, he and this is why it's you know I heard I was talking to somebody one time and they said oh well you know but it doesn't matter that Jesus was tempted because you know it's different for him. No, it wasn't. And I had to say no, friend, you don't understand. Like it was he underwent every torture of temptation to sin you've ever undergone, and he never gave in. 
Yep. Right. So, so he's, he is, it actually matters what you think of how this economy works because it changes whether Jesus as your, as your savior is comforting to you or not. He, yep. He's, he's not, Jesus isn't just, Cause well, you heard it right there, how yeah. it, it was less comforting to that person. Yes. Oh, it's different for him. Yeah. It's, it's not different. You know, you, you have to, and that's why this is so important. Jesus as the son, he is, he's, he's, he is in his own, by his own power as fully God is limiting himself. It's not being laid on him as like a, a punishment. He is saying, I refuse to access my um, my omniscience in this instance. I will let this other person give me this news and tell me, and then I will know. You know, it says that he grew in wisdom and in stature. Why did he grow in anything? He's God. Yes, but he chose to grow in wisdom and in stature so that he went through the experience of growing up like you grew yeah. up. So that he 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 chose to be tempted in every way as a man, yet without sin, yet yeah. without sin. Yeah. It's but called, you can't it's called, let go of the in every way. He he chose those same experiences that we've had, be, so that he could fully redeem us. Yeah, it's called divine impeccability. When you mm-hmm. say something is impeccable, we usually mean it's flawless. Well, if you know Spanish. Pecador mm-hmm. means sinner. Mm-hmm. So impeccability is, comes from the Latin, and it means that Jesus did not sin. And the actual theological definition of this is, as a man, Jesus was able to sin. Mm. But as God, it was certain that Those he would folks not. folks don't like that. You have to, I mean, it doesn't make any sense otherwise. Yeah, no, I agree with uh, you. you. I you, agree with that's you. That's not what the Bible teaches. He was mm-hmm. tempted to sin, but he didn't. Right. Like that, you you need that. So we're actually kind of jumping the gun on our discussion here. But what I'm trying to show you is this is what Jesus did in the incarnation is to come and represent God to the people. Mm. You might say incarnation is the the economical role of the son mm. to, re- to represent the rule of his father among men. That's that's his you've seen me, greatest you've seen rule. The father, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, that's such a great verse, isn't yeah. it? If you've Bonkers. seen me, you've seen the father. But it's pretty Trinitarian. I, yeah, there, you know, <laughs> I don't want to get off on this, but there's a guy that calls the church every so often and tries to like start fights. And it's <laughs> it's one of the ones he likes to talk about is this whole thing of, well, it, it says no one has seen God at any time, but people saw Jesus, so he can't be God. But it's like, but that's, <laughs> you do realize this. that's one of the <laughs> whole points of John. Yeah. It's like, it's building to uh-huh. that, that no, but you've seen me, you have seen the father yeah. and you've seen and you believe. And so, but anyway, so, and of course the greatest of this is he took the sin of man upon himself he died. God died. God experienced death. Hmm. You know, there are some that, like C.S. Lewis is one of these guys that like to talk about the dying God and Jesus is the dying God. It's 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 not exactly that. It's it's the dying man. <laughs> right, right. The dying man who was also God, hmm. but in his divinity, he you know, death couldn't hold him because right. he had paid the price for sin. So then he, what did he do? He rose from the dead. Hallelujah. Mm-hmm. Right? Because he couldn't be held by death. He ascended into heaven and he sat down at the right hand of the father. And that's that's what the son was was meant to do. Oh, that's I would argue that that last for. part, like, because you know, sometimes I f- we've probably talked. We need to we need to do a whole podcast on the resurrection. That's what we need to do. Need to write, do it down, <laughs> write it down. Write it down. Because I think there's so much that's in the post death of Jesus part of the incarnation that we kind yeah, of like. You talk about the harrowing of hell forget. for an episode. Yes, I'm going to for a minute. So we, we kind of for, not forget. We don't talk, but it's so important to the incarnation. The resurrection is a part of the economy of the Trinity as the son, Jesus returning with his like spoils and saying, I yeah, did Ephesians it. I four. did it, dad. Like I look, I've, I've done all the things you sent me out to do and I've come back victorious. Right. And that's, and now I'm giving spiritual gifts 
Right, Dispe- to, to our people, <laughs> dispensing with the largesse that the, the you know the father has given him, and now he gets to hand it out because he's the victor. There's even a I, you know sometimes atonement theories I think are just chopping the same thing different ways, but there's this idea that part of the atonement is Jesus being victorious, and there's a there's a sunness to that. Yeah. You know, that he's been sent out to accomplish this and he comes back saying, I did everything you sent me out to do and I've I've won. I blew the door open in hell and I brought out everybody that you sent me to bring out and here I am. You know, and yes. that, that's why he gets to sit at his father's right hand. And that's why, by the way, that's why every time the Bible talks about us being united with him as heirs, it's completely mind-blowing because yeah. all of these things and that Jesus has accomplished as the son, we we in some way get to participate in. And that's going to be our, our big finish when we get to the end of this uh, right, right, right. Trinitarian yes. series. But uh, the other thing I want to focus on, so if the father's job is is that authority mm. and the son's job, is, I, I don't have a real snappy one for that. Is, is, shall we say representation I think that's a good of the one, father? Actually, yeah. uh, you know, the... the the one that does the will of the father, that's really more the spirit, I guess. The incarnation is such a huge part of it. Mm-hmm. But there's something I want to notice before we'll return to this subject in a bit. But the son, while he was on the earth, was in submission to his father and to the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. The Holy Spirit says drove Jesus into the wilderness and the spirit led him here. And then the spirit empowered him and, and spoke to him and he submitted to his father and his son. Well, when he ascended to heaven, he says, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to you. And now the Holy Spirit exists to testify of Jesus in the life of the believer. And it says the father has given all authority to the son. What you're seeing is that there's movement in the economy of the Trinity. I want you to notice that, that the son submitted himself to the one who proceeds from him. Isn't that astonishing to consider that in the relationships of origin, the son is equal to the father and the son. Yet while he was on the earth, he submitted to the father and the son. And now we're living in an age where the father has more or less stepped aside and handed authority to his son. So I'm, I'm going to be making more of this a little bit later, but I'm trying to draw out the economy, the working of the Trinity is not affecting the ontology of the threeness of these three. They are still equally God in a perichoretic relationship that is mind-blowing to you and to me. Now, let's talk about the Holy Spirit. Okay. The Holy Ghost. Hey, Zach, is it okay to call the Holy Spirit the Holy Ghost? Uh, Well, yeah, and also it sounds awesome, so. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) that's that's an important theological consideration. No, yes, it is. The reason that was changed is because ghost kind of means something else these days. And, yeah, and that's, but it's, that's it means pretty much spirit, why the translation though, it, yeah, changed. But yeah. Okay. yeah, the word is pneuma. It means spirit. You know, awesome. ghost kind of means spirit too. So sure. uh, anyway, but the Holy Spirit, Holy Ghost, it's the same thing. Uh, this is how I heard it taught one time, and I love this. The Holy Spirit in the economy of the Trinity, who is also equal to the Father and the Son, don't get that messed up. Mm-hmm. He is the agent of the Godhead, meaning mm-hmm. he is the doer. If God is the decider, then the spirit is the doer. He is the one who actualizes the things. If God says, let's make a world, and the son says, let there be light, the spirit is the one out there making light. You know, mm. making the world, and there God created, and there's the spirit hovering over the face of mm. the waters, right? God says, let's save these people. The son dies on the cross, but the spirit is the one who comes and regenerates and actually brings and applies that salvation to a person. So that's that's the difference. All right. So uh, the agent of the of the Trinity, he's the one that that does things. So mm. if you think of anything that God in his divine will orders to be done, the spirit's the one doing it. So let's talk about the Bible, Zach. 
It's God's will to speak to us, yes? Mm-hmm. Right? And so God the Father says, this must be spoken. And the Spirit, the Son is the Word of God. He's the one that communicates. But we know that it is a gift of the Holy Spirit to receive prophecy and to write these things down because it's the Spirit actually making this happen. No, that's why we talk that's about pretty the Bible awesome to think inspired about it. by the Holy Spirit. We yes. refer to the, the, the person. Inspire, it's a breath word, right. breathed out or breathed in. And that doesn't mean, you know, it doesn't mean dictated by. It means that the people who were inscribing Scripture were so filled with the Holy Spirit that what they are writing is the Word of God. And, yes. and there's a pretty cool... Carried du- along, Peter says. Yeah, and there's a pretty cool duality the in there too, right? It's not It's not that... The, it's not... We don't believe like Mormons believe or, or some of these other cults that, you know, what we're receiving is something that just got beamed into their brain or that was, you know, written by the finger of God on a tablet. No, it was God working through a person. Except for the places where God did write on a tablet. Very true, yes. And except for the places like in Revelation where he right. says, write this. Write this specifically. But yeah, but as a whole, we believe that when Paul was writing a letter, he was writing a letter as best he knew how, prayerfully and humbly before the Lord, but the Holy Spirit was there guiding his pen, mm-hmm. using his personality and sovereignly bringing him to a place where he would write the letter exactly the way that God wanted it written, that the Father and the Son wanted it written. That's we the talk Spirit's about, job. We've talked about, too, before when we talk about the Holy Spirit, that he's not, this isn't always either just like this, oh, kind of background, like, yeah, this is what's really happening, but sort of the Spirit is participating. No, there's many times in Scripture where he's participating with lines. Where the oh, spirit yeah, says, you know, separate for me, Paul and uh, Paul and Barnabas, right? Where or the spirit, you know, the spirit says, this is the thing that you know it needs to happen, or that they they prayed and the Holy Spirit, you know, selected a new uh, a new one to replace Judas, right? In the twelve, like like there's all these indi- these places where the Holy Spirit is it's taking an active. The Holy Spirit takes an active role. He's not just kind of the glue that's pasting together the actions <laughs> right. of God. He's, if you see he's anything miraculous there. that God is doing in the yes, Bible, it's a work right. of the Spirit of God. Right, right, right. That's that's what we believe is happening, mm-hmm. that the Holy Spirit is at work and he's speaking and he's thundering and he's tearing apart and he's holding together you and can see this in moving on people's hearts, right? You yeah, can see this incarnation. in the incarnation too. The Holy Spirit overshadowed the womb of Mary mm-hmm. and placed a baby in Mary's womb that was the incarnate Son of God. So you might even say that the Holy Spirit is the one that effected the incarnation with mm-hmm. an E. He effected, made happen the incarnation. It was the of- Father's will. The Son voluntarily stepped aside and emptied himself, but it was the Spirit that actually placed that little mm-hmm. embryo that was Jesus Christ, the Son of God, in the belly of this woman. And then you see that happen in the ministry of Jesus too, where he does nothing unless his father tells him. And who is the one who, but how is that happening? Well, his father is spirating the spirit and saying, tell him to do this now. Yes, now it you, is you the see time that it is baptism. The, yeah, right? now is the time for this. Now is the time for this work. When Jesus says, woman, it's not my time. The one who is telling him it's not yet your time is the Holy Spirit of God. He's saying, no, it's not our time to do that. Or when so, when suddenly Jesus would turn and do something and would you know enact some miracle, or what, it was the power of the Holy Spirit that was upon him doing that, which is why it's so cool that Je- Jesus isn't different than us in the way that he ministered. No, Jesus ministry, he's the template. He's yes, the example for us. Jesus' ministry ministered. is the same as your ministry. Jesus also had to wait upon the Holy Spirit. Jesus also couldn't act without the Holy Spirit. He wasn't just, you know, unleashed with his own power. He was receiving the power of the Holy Spirit. He was baptized with the Holy Spirit, just like we can be, right? Yeah, and he was waiting be. for that. He had to go out into the wilderness to, you know, because the Spirit sent him to go wait for what the Father told him to do. Yeah, for those of y'all that don't quite get this, I want to emphasize this here. Jesus did not do any miracles when he was a child. 
Mm-mm. He he was living yeah, yeah. like a normal kid. Right. He didn't sin, which I'm sure raised some eyebrows. But remember, I mean, we as people, as the Pharisees demonstrate, are so judgmental that right. many people probably thought he did, even though he never sinned. They say, "Oh well, he, you know, he sassed me, or you know, mm. he did that." So yeah, nobody would have thought he was perfect, like floating off the ground. But he was also God, very God. And we see even from the time he was 11 or 12 years old, like he was said, I got to be about my father's business. He, he had this internal sense and no doubt God was speaking to him, which is interesting because that's really about the age I feel like I really began to feel the Lord speaking to me too. It was around 11 or 12 when I began to really connect mm, with think, God and yeah, the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Um, I think that's just about that age where you start to hear from the Lord for the first time. But the Holy Spirit then, when Jesus was baptized, the Spirit came upon him and drove him into the wilderness to be tempted. And that's when Jesus came back. He came back out of that wilderness saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Everything that followed was by the leadership of the Holy Spirit. And that's that's why, by the way, Jesus spent so much time in prayer, like taking extra time in the middle of the night to go pray. pray. Guys, if Jesus needed to pray in order that he might hear from God the Father, how much more do we? If you want to have a ministry like Jesus and you're not going to pray like Jesus, it ain't going to happen. Mm. But when you get to the uh, the Last Supper, Jesus is saying, I'm going to send you that other helper. I'm going to send you the one like myself who will give you a ministry like I've been given. You, it'll multiply. It'll be even greater than what I did because you're going to be here longer. And I'm going to be at my Father's right hand empowering and, and affirming those prayers. And it's going to be like nothing the world has ever seen, which is what happens in Acts chapter 2. Mm. The Holy Spirit comes upon the church and everything changes. So the Holy Spirit's job now in the economy of the Trinity is to see, to, first of all, to convict and draw people mm-hmm. to salvation. That conscience that you have, it's not just a conscience. It's the Holy Spirit drawing you, awakening your conscience, saying you need a Savior. You need Jesus. Mm-hmm. Then he seals them for salvation. When you put your faith in Christ, Romans 8 says, he who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not have Christ. And we know how you get Christ. You put your faith in Jesus <laughs> right, and you right. repent. You believe. Once that happened, the Spirit seals you. But he also, in that secondary work, baptizes you with his power. And you are given gifts by the from the spoils of war from Jesus mm. Christ. And he that's where 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 come in. And you can be constantly renewed and filled with the Holy Spirit in this ongoing relationship to, to fulfill the work. And you mentioned the Holy Spirit speaks, he has lines, he sends visions, he tells people where to go and where not to go in the, in the Bible. And we are, you know, for as much as they ought to be corrected from time to time, the church owes an inestimable debt to the Pentecostal churches for reminding us of the Holy Spirit. No, no doubt. Absolutely. We've got to remember that, to remind us of the Holy Spirit. Theologians of faith, theologians of power and and belief, and let's let's encounter God as we ought to. That I'm not a Pentecostal with a big capital P. I believe I'm a charismatic Christian. I'm a a Pentecostal spirit-filled Christian. But man, for so long, the church was struggling and suffering. Why? I think in large measure because... And we've done more evangelism in the last century or two than ever before. Why? Because the churches were been reminded of the power of the Holy Spirit again. I know, no kidding. It, it took yeah. us even a couple of centuries after the Reformation to get that. Mm. Although he was always at work, but you know, we also know the Holy Spirit's job is to bring us the things of the Father, to bring us the things of the Son. The Holy Spirit is in submission to the Father and the Son right now. Mm. Jesus said, "We're both going to send him, send him to you," which. We know that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. By the way, here's a little thought, a little deeper theological thought, I guess. 
I, I'm kind of starting to advocate for this position that while the ontology of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are not determined by their economy, their relations, relationships of origin are reflected in the economy. And I think the reason we have to say that is one of the main reasons we believe that the Spirit proceeds from the Son is because Jesus said, I will send him to you. We are drawing an ontological right. conclusion based upon an economical action of the Son. There's a thought I can sure. break down a little deeper, but Zach, we really can't forget about the Holy Spirit, can we? Uh, no, you forget about him at your at your peril. <laughs> um, especially we're living you, in the know, age of the Holy Spirit. Yes, yeah. Well, and 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 just think. And this is why I, I plead with people sometimes who feel like this is something that can be neglected, or or just say, "Well, that seems nice, and it's a fun elective." And I just, I, I you know, I struggle. <laughs> no, core class, right? I struggle with that because look, I, you know, think of all those things that Jesus did, and then think of all the times that Jesus reminded us that I am sending to you this Comforter. And like realize that it is possible, it is possible for you to have the same relationship to the third person of the Godhead that the second person of the Godhead had when he was incarnated. He's bringing you into that relationship. The same, like yeah. there's, there is no, you can be equally filled of the Holy Spirit as Jesus Christ was when he walked on this planet Preach. In, in, in human form. Why, explain to me how that is a secondary issue plan out for me how you want to accomplish all of the things that God has for your life, how you want to move forward in ministry, how you want to succeed as a, as a father, how you want to succeed as a husband. How are you planning on doing that and saying, yeah, and it might be good, I suppose, to have a, a identical relationship to the Holy Spirit that Jesus did, but also if it doesn't happen, I'm not fussed. I am like, I can't imagine knowing that that's possible. And not only that, having tasted it before, I oh, cannot goodness. undo that in my life. No. And do you know what I think the answer to that question is? I think is because this is the unmistakably mystical part of the Christian life. Yes, accurate. Yeah. And I yes, think yes, there yes, are some yes. people that have a very hard yeah. time with that. Yep. But, you know, this is really not so much about the Trinity right now as much as, well, I guess it still is. It We're is, talking about though. the, the economy of the yeah. Trinity, right? That mm -hmm. this is how the the Spirit works is it's what he does is he fills and baptizes and empowers and endues and convicts and leads and draws his people. And many people say, I, I want the passive parts of that. Mm. I want to receive the things that I get from yep. reading the book, but yep. I don't want to have an encounter yep. with the Holy Spirit. I want the, I want the parts that I could equally fake intellectually without any of Oof. the unmistakable, Oof. mystical, religious, supernaturally powerful parts. You know, guys, the Christ, Christian life is a mystical one. Mm. You have to say that. I, and I mean, I use the term mystical here in distinction to magical. Sure. But it's more than just normal. Yeah. It's more than just material. Mm. If you want to, there's a three M, there's a quick three point sermon for you. <laughs> the Christian life is not material. It's not magical, but it is mystical. Yeah, yeah. We are encountering the living God. No. What do you think prayer is? But the thing is, I think most people that have this negative view of the spirit-filled life probably don't pray much mm. because prayer is conversation with the Holy Spirit. Right. And you're going to be drawn in that direction if the more you pray. But things like, you know, you, you look at how the prophets conducted with themselves. This is yeah. why yeah. I, I don't believe there's a distinction between Old and New Testament prophecy. I don't think that upho that's upheld biblically. But even if you don't believe that, look at the Old Testament way those that were filled with the Spirit acted. Mm. They were strange. <laughs> Super like, I'm weird. not saying you got to be weird, but like <laughs> mm. when they needed to hear from God, what did they do? They didn't eat. 
They stopped eating. They laid out on the floor. They let somebody come in and play music. They cried out. They groaned. They sighed in their spirit. Why? Because they are trying to engage the spiritual side of themselves. Mm. They're trying to have a conversation. I, I was told somebody about this at the conference we were just at not long ago. And I said, the things of the spirit are spiritual. It's a third side of you. It's not mental. It's not physical. Mm. It's spiritual. And Zach, you know this. You walk in the spirit, and we you have hear from the Lord. I mean, it's a it, it's not, it feels intuitive, but it's even beyond intuitive. It's like this is something that is not what I'm used to. I think intuitive. Yeah, it's not to intuitive. get a word from the Lord right, is right, like right, it's right, not right. something I thought of. It's like no. I don't. I can't ex- hardly explain it to somebody it's else. Not intuitive, what it's like it's experiential. Meaning I can't, I can't, it's mystical. Uh, yeah, I can't always explain it to you, but I can help. If you have had an experience, I can help instruct you as to whether or not that might be of the Lord. But, but, but it's, you're, you're reliant on the Lord for these things. And that, that by the way, and I'm not trying to be mean, because I'm describing myself in, in the past, in my weakness of my spiritual life before. This is why we do not like to talk about or rely on these things is because they are deeply humbling to you as a Christian. Yes. The, the experience of the Holy Spirit is not up to you. You are nope. dependent and because you are dependent, people don't like that. They would prefer to to walk in a Christian life that is up to them. Well, I know that if I read my Bible, I will get smarter. And if I do this in ministry, we will get this. And 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 we we struggle when we encounter the Lord in a way that we can't rely on. Every time I told somebody this the other day, I said, every time I pray and ask the Lord to hear what the word is from the Holy Spirit, I don't know what's going to happen, and I'm afraid that it might not. No, and I'm it, and it gets strange, you guys. Every time. We, we ought to do a series on the Holy Spirit have soon, to. sooner have rather to, than to. later. But um if you really want to feel tripped out, you should realize that there are certain places in the Bible where it uses the same language to describe your relationship to the Holy Spirit as it did some of the men that Jesus cast demons out of. It would say, he has an evil spirit. Hmm. And then Paul will hmm. talk about, if you have the Holy Spirit. Hmm. It's talking about, you've got a foreign entity living inside of you, taking up space in your body, sharing your mind, so to speak. Like that's, there's somebody else in there. That's what it means to have the Holy Spirit. Now, the, the Holy Spirit <laughs> isn't like a demon who's going to drive no, you to no, do no, wicked no, no. things. He's yeah. not going to try to take over you and grab hold of you no. because he's good. Right. But we do read of the Holy Spirit rushing upon somebody. Yeah. We read of the Holy Spirit speaking to you. And that that's, I don't want to push this too far. But I'm using biblical language when I say the relationship between you and the Holy Spirit is an intensely spiritual one. And if you are afraid to go there, my friend, you're going to miss out. Mm-hmm. That's that's how Jesus walked. That's how Paul walked and Peter. That's how Elijah walked, was in fellowship with the Holy Spirit. And, when we've been and that's talking, his economical relationship to you and to me. You had the blessing to live in the age of the Holy Spirit. The age of the Father, if we want to talk about it that way, was before Christ. The age of the Spirit is now, and the age of the Son is to come when he returns in glory. Mm. Take advantage of your blessings and your privileges that you're living in right Let's now. Let's go. So we've been talking about this whole thing. I want to bring it back to now, talking about this economy of the Trinity idea. The, in a sense then, I remember we were talking about that midwit thing, right? That people always say, well, technically Jesus isn't coming and being in your heart. It's the Holy Spirit. Well, okay, whatever guy. Also, technically, because all of them are, you know, because it is still the unity of of the Trinity, because, you know, it is, yes, it's the Spirit of Jesus. The Spirit of Christ is within you. So, but notice that this is the way to participate in what God is doing in the world yep. through his people. There is not an alternate way. There, there is, in scripture, we are not given 
a alternative method read more books <laughs> to be part of right to, we, we, there's not an alternative method to be part of the activity of god within his church which is advancing his kingdom which is bringing about god's will the way to do that is to receive the power of the holy spirit so that you can be present in what the lord is doing so that you can also participate in the communion that the son has with the father and the spirit Yes. So, so there, really, there isn't some alternative. Well, and if you don't it's like that, it's a mandate. Yes. If if you don't it's like that, there's a gluten free option over here that doesn't include the scary mystical bits. We, we're not given that option in Scripture, and no. I'm saying that with full, you know, I believe that the Holy Spirit works whether or not you realize it. <laughs> so I know that the Lord is still working even through people that aren't comfortable with some of this. But why would we? Why would we willingly let go of or willingly take a backseat on anything that the Lord has for us? So I'm reading a book right now about uh, about ministry, very practical, mm. very, very business-like. Uh, that's okay, though. And one of the things they're talking about is how to develop the core values of your ministry. Mm. And he makes a good point. He said that uh, the core values of your ministry should be in alignment with the core values of yourself. And it, that only makes sense, right? You don't want something in your church to be important that's not important to you, Correct. et cetera. Yeah. Uh, but he said, if you're not taking the time to develop your own personal core values, maybe you should do that. And I did not take the time to do that. But <laughs> as I was reading, I knew immediately, if I had to write down what's the core values of my life, here's number one. It comes from a song that I wrote because I thought about this a lot. And I'll just say it to you. If God may be known, nothing else matters. Mm. That's the core value of my life. And it should be of yours too. Mm. That... If we can know God, who cares about the Eagles and the Vikings, man? (laughs) Who cares about Trump or Biden? Who cares? Like these things are irrelevant in comparison to the knowledge of God. Mm. So I I shouldn't go off into that rabbit trail anymore. (laughs) But man, know God, guys. You can. Why wouldn't you want to? So that's the economy of the Trinity. You have the Father who is, shall we say, the authority of the Godhead. He is the decider. He's the power, the judge, and the love. Jesus, who is the representative, the son of the Father. He is the incarnate one. He's the revealer. He's the one that died and rose again. And number three, the Holy Spirit, who is the agent of the Godhead. He's the doer. He's the one that communicates the rest of the Godhead to us. He has interaction with his people. And you see that these are distinct roles. The Father did not die for your sins. The son did. Mm. That's actually an ancient heresy called Patropassianism, and we don't believe in that. The son died for your sins, not the father. The spirit did not die for your sins either. The father didn't Mm. rise from the dead. The son did not send himself. He was sent by the father. Mm. The spirit did not send the son. The father has never been, to our knowledge, in submission to the son or the spirit, but Mm. the son was. There's distinctions in how they work. And in the outworking, there is a lot more fluidity and even more distinction than in their ontology, which we have to be very careful about and and say, no, this is their relationships of origin, etc. So hopefully that makes a little sense to you. The difference between the the being of God and the doing of God, the ontology and the economy, the, the nature and the works of God. So... Zach, there's one more thing I want to get into here because there's a great lesson to be learned from all this. But in order to get there and make sure that we're okay to have that discussion, uh, this is a very um, frequent debate that springs up these days around the Trinity. And this is the idea of hierarchy 
within the Godhead. That's uh-huh. a loaded word, man. It's almost like, should we even use that word anymore? You know, to that, yeah, you know, yeah, should sure, either sure. side use that word? Maybe we can talk about something else. We might actually agree with each other. But uh, the idea of hierarchy, the idea of role, the idea of authority. One of the things that we want to avoid is something called subordinationism. And Zach, that definition's right in the name, right? Mm-hmm. Subordination. The son is not eternally subordinate to the father. Meaning he's not less. Uh, right. He's not less the than. The son you, is you not clarify. less than. The son is not less than. The, Neither the, is the spirit. Right. The spirit is not less than. The father is not more God than either of them. Absolutely not. Right. That, that's, that's of course, it sounds pretty heretical when you say it out loud, right? So we know that, right? So, so and, and sometimes people who, you know, are godly, wonderful people trying to understand these things, when you start to define the distinctions, they start to get really upset and, and uneasy because they say, well, you're making the son less than. Yeah. Some people have a view like almost that God is 50% God. Jesus is 30% God and the spirit's 20% and that, you know, that they mm-hmm. are ranked accordingly. Uh, that's, that's heresy. We do not believe yeah, that. Yeah. Absolutely not. How do we know that? Well, first of all, because God is one. Right. The three are one. That's like, dividing. That's, yeah. That you're not, you're dividing the substance. When you do that, you're also confounding the persons, I might, I might add. Right. But, okay, we believe that. We also believe that they are equal to one another because there's a perichoretic relationship. They mutually contain one another. Mm-hmm. You can't say that the spirit is less than the father because the spirit contains the father. He can't be separated from the father. Right. He, in, right. he is indwelt by and, and also indwells uh-huh. the father. He knows everything the father knows. The relationships of origin, okay, the son proceeds or is begotten by the father and the spirit proceeds from the father and the son. We, How many times did we hammer? These are eternal relationships and they do not speak of value or rank. However... There are those that want to look at the economy of the Trinity, that the Son was sent by the Father, the Spirit uh, is sent by the Father and the Son, and so on, and say, no, it is good for us to speak in terms of rank in the Godhead. But what you are missing there is the distinction between the ontology and the economy of the mm-hmm. Godhead. When Jesus says something like, the Father is, is greater than I am, for he ranks before me, that's an economical statement. And the only way it would affect the ontology is we know that he is eternally begotten by the Father. That's not a statement of value because later on he'll say, I and the Father are one. Right. You don't want to take the most confusing statements and put them first. Put in place what you know to be true, and then you can take a confusing statement yep. like that and interpret it by it. So that's the debate. And Zach, you've come across all, all of this, oh, yeah. maybe a little more than I have. So you want to talk to about it, it, son? Well, it just it gets pretty angry, I think, when people... What, what ends up happening, I'll just be honest, what ends up happening is people end up trying to make political points based on their Trinitarian theology, and they see, people on multiple sides of this issue see their hoped-for political end goal, the, the the stick that they want to hit somebody with, the application point they want to make, and they start preaching backwards from that. So, for example, to put a real fine point on it, you have some people who in the Trinity, they want to literally dismantle the doctrine of the Trinity because they see... Feminists. They, they, right. They see they, feminist ideology or theology sometimes sees within the Trinity hierarchy that they deeply dislike and they say well we can't have this doctrine because it teaches us that that authority differences of authority are okay so yep. so they attack them for the doctrine of the trinity They're some of the strongest opponents of the which of, of, the of course are, are feminists that, that should teach us an important lesson which is that included within the well <laughs> <laughs> that should teach us an important lesson which is in addition to that lesson tyler that included within the doctrine of the trinity is the idea that to god authority is not the same thing as value 
Right. And yeah. this should and be important to us as Christians. You need to know as a Christian that you must reject the idea that having authority changes your value at all. And not having authority doesn't change your value at all either. Now, to the yeah, opposite. Yeah, hold on, hold on. Let's, let's put a pin in that. Go ahead, go ahead. And, and let's, uh, so hit the other side real quick, just and then we'll, we'll slow walk to that conclusion. To the opposite side, some people, in an effort to kind of tee off on these people, right, to just put this idea down, and they will begin to really, over, in my opinion, they'll begin to really overemphasize these distinctions to the point of actually saying, no, yes, Jesus, you'll hear a, a phrase called eternal subordination of the Son, meaning Jesus has always been subordinated to the Father, which I feel like, okay, listen, you can't, in order to be so excited to fight woke ideology, you can't ma- end up making the same mistake as them, which is to, to, to conflate authority and value. Jesus doesn't have to eternally be subordinated to the Father to eternally have different authority than the Father. Right. Right. So, so you don't, that, in other words, you don't need to make a bad point to, to get to a good conclusion. Well, what they're doing, let me, if you're listening to this and you're one of those guys, you know, you're sure. one of the, the trad bros who I, I <laughs> the point you're trying to make, I agree with. Yeah, yeah. But what you're doing and saying no, because the, the feminists say, we, you know, the Trinity teaches the eternal subordination of the Son and that's bad. The more traditional guys come along and say, the Trinity teaches the eternal subordination of the Son and that's good. You're both wrong. <laughs> right. You are, you know, for you trad guys, you're letting the feminists set the terms of the debate. Yes. Which if you've, if you yes. can't do that. Yes. You can't let them set the terms. You come in and say, no, that's not what the Trinity teaches and you're wrong. Right. You know, because what, what some people try to do is, no, no, the Trinity doesn't teach eternal subordination of the Son and you're right. No, that this is the, the fourth option here. Mm. We don't believe in the eternal subordination of the Son and... There is such a thing as subordination between men and women. There's submission and, and role and rank. Okay, let's let's get to this here. Here's how we, the best way to look at this. Some people really don't like, well, this is, what this touches on is called social Trinitarianism. They say it's not, it's not proper to think of the Trinity as a society of persons. And you should not take lessons about society from the Trinity because that's not what the Trinity is. I, I, I agree with that in principle. God is something unique, right? Remember, we just we talked on that kind of <laughs> yeah. Lovecraftian unknowability, which God is not Lovecraftian. It's just an illustration, okay? That unknowability, that like mind-blowing, you can't comprehend what you just saw sort of thing. However, I think knowing that, I don't think that it is proper to say that we can't learn anything about society from the Trinity. Zach's already hit on this point, so let me just emphasize, here's what I think we can learn. And I'll give you an example first. I just talked about all the different ways that the Holy Spirit and the Father and the Son act and relate to one another. The Father has all authority, but it also says he's granted all authority to Mm. his Son. It also says that the Son will return all of that authority back to the Father at the end of time. Yet we also know that while the Son was on the earth, he was in submission to the Holy Spirit. We know that right now the Holy Spirit is in submission to the Father and the Son. What am I trying to show you here? I'm trying to show you that the the works of the Trinity are what, as Paul would say in Ephesians, submit to one another. Mm. There's mutual submission. There's back and forth. That there's parts that they play, but they are willing to submit to one another depending on the day. So, you know, the eternal subordination of, of the Son is not a true doctrine, but we do see that the Son is frequently subordinate to the Father in his economy, 
Not right now because he's reigning with all authority and he's going to continue to reign with all authority until he gives it back. Do you see this mm. in and out? What does this teach us? Here's the lesson that you can learn. And then I think we can arrive at the same place the, the more traditional guys are trying to get to. Oh, I think But so. with good yeah, theology yeah. here. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. The good theology is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are willing to do different things that even involve their own stepping aside, deferring their rights, submitting to one another, even submitting to somebody that you used to have authority over and you will have authority over again later, but for right now, I'm in submission to them. What does this teach us? This And, and yet all of that, here's the second part, all of that, but all of them are equal to one another. Yes. In fact, they are one with one another. That never changes. Their ontology never changes despite what happens in the economy. Here's the lesson. You are not defined and determined by your economy. Mm. You are defined and determined by your ontology. Every single man, woman, and child on this earth is equal before God. He loves us all as distinct individuals. He knows your name. He loves you with an everlasting love. He died for you equally. Here there is no Greek or, or Jew or slave or free or male or female. It's not that those things don't exist. It's that there's no rank before the foot of the cross. Because of the ontology, we're all made in the image of God. That never changes. And can, you, can you hear how important that you guys? You got to hit this point too, guys. Yeah, you yeah, got to yeah. get this one. Can you hear how important that is? By the way, getting that right and how that suddenly cracks open all of these seemingly intractable debates that are going on in our world right now. Debates over gender, debates over race, debates over all these different things that you hear people talking at cross purposes. And it's because we haven't understood the lesson that God is trying to teach us even within himself, which is, and what? how can we, and to, to make, let's put some real practical points on this. Yes, within your marriage, if, if it is possible for God to, to do this that we've talked about, if it's possible for God to defer to another person of the Trinity that the Son could defer, or the Father, if it's possible for the Father to hand authority to the Son without diminishing himself, then you, You're guess what? It. Guess what? You as a father can hand authority to your son without diminishing yourself. You don't have to rule as a tyrant. You can, you can being completely in charge of your family. Defer to one another Defer sometimes. to one another. Be kind. Yeah. You, can be per, you can be a perfect father figure and yet still say, you know what? In this case, I'm going to have you make that decision. So, okay. In, in the so, other way, you if it's possible for the son to to subordinate himself to the father, then as a wife, you can subordinate yourself to your husband without diminishing of who you are without becoming lesser, right? You, That's as exactly a husband, right. you can take authority without be, somehow becoming, be, without lessening, making yourself some sort of tyrant. You don't have to be a tyrant to have that authority. In fact, taking the position of authority may often result in you needing to defer to others, taking on sacrifices and setting yourself aside for their good. Now, if you want to make this point, friends on Twitter or you know the the social media network formerly known as Twitter <laughs> look if you want to make this point here's where the feminist theologians are wrong they say that economical submission is equal to ontological subordination right right, right they're right. wrong yep they're, that is exactly precisely right where it is wrong they believe that if I have to do the dishes while my husband goes to work that makes him better than me yeah what you should do, friends, is not agree with them on that point. Right. 
and then say, yeah, but that's the way it is and you should just deal with it. You should dig in your heels and say, no, no, no. If Jesus Christ is one with the Father and yet he can submit to his Father in all things, that tells us that what you do doesn't affect who you are. Therefore, if you are a wife in submission to your husband, that says nothing about your soul. Mm. Nothing, zero. What you do for a living does not affect who you are as a person. If you are a construction worker, and, and the thing is, construction workers often make really good money, so this is often a very yeah, bad illustration, silly, yeah. <laughs> but it's a very white-collar thing to do. Uh-huh. But here you go. Look, if you're if you're working, let's say, if you're working at 1-800-GOT-JUNK, mm-hmm. all right, as I did for some time, right? You're working there, and I go into one of these mansions, and I mean mansions, yeah. and I'm clearing out these houses, and I hear this guy talking on his Bluetooth, you know, buy, sell, you know, hey, I made another <laughs> million today, and oh, we can stand to lose a few million just to prove a point. Like, I can sit there and think, man, he does that, he has this, mm. I have this, and I do that. And I can think to myself, I must be much less than him. That's wrong. Yeah. It doesn't matter. It does not affect my soul one whit. Here's the problem. We are petty, jealous, vengeful, selfish people. (laughs) And we think, but I want more and I want to do better and I want to earn more and be more and be known and be loved. And I want to be the head and not the tail. And I don't want to be submitting. I want to be leading. I should be in charge because that's who I really am. But God looks at that and says, what you do doesn't affect who you are at all. What you do for a living, what kind of money you make, what role you take in marriage. The pastor is not greater than the lay person or Mm. vice versa. They're equal before God. They are distinct in what they do, but that's okay. And people will hear that. A feminist will hear that and say, that's oppressive. You're telling what you really are doing is you, you really don't think that. You're just telling that to keep women down. Well, listen, sister, I actually believe that. Right. I actually believe that. A Christian actually believes these things. Mm. It's not a game. It's not a trick. I actually believe that my wife and I are equal before God. I do not have a leg up before God over her. We are ontological equals made in the image of God. And that it doesn't matter that she submits and that I lead. That that is so necessary. Thomas Jefferson said we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Look, I love America more than anybody, but is that (laughs) self-evident that all men are created equal? Mm. I don't know that it is. It's Mm. a nice thought. Do you know that the Christian can actually think that? Mm -hmm. A Christian can actually, that tells you how embedded Christianity was to the culture, by the way, that that was self-evident to him, that we believe that we are created equal and that it doesn't matter what you do. If you're a farmer, if you're a junkyard worker, if you're a billionaire, if you're a whatever it might be. You are equal before the Lord. So then the conversation moves to, what did God say? He told wives, submit to your husbands in all things as unto the Lord. He told husbands to love their wives and and to lead their families. And he also told the kings and the governors to lead and to carry Mm. the sword for God, for righteousness sake, and for all of us to pay our taxes and pay honor to whom honor is due. Those things don't affect you. Stop letting the world tell you that what you do and what you have and how you rank affects your soul. Because then what that will lead you into a constant drive to validate yourself that if I I think I'm better so if I can make myself better and I'll earn more money and have more shiny things then everybody will think that I'm somebody friend you are already somebody Jesus already loves you and died for you and it's okay if you are going to be the tail and not the head for a while it's okay if you're in submission to your husband it's okay you should that doesn't affect you it's not a thing 
We do it because that's what God has said. And that's that's where that conversation has to be had. Ontology, or sorry, economy does not determine ontology. Can you see, that's where this conversation needs to be had. Can you see why biblical theology, by the way, is so important? Because it acts as a guardrail that prevents us from allowing our cultural obsessions to infiltrate the way we think about things as important as God. Because you can see in that discussion we just had that both of these sides that are trying to do theology, they're allowing our cultural 21st century American obsession with the concept of power to radically alter the way they look at God. Neither of them can perceive that God being perfect can have power and give power and relinquish power without it changing who he is at the core. And neither of them truly believe that because they're so obsessed with the idea that power defines you. Either yeah. having it or not having it, right? So this is why we have to make our theology biblically. The Bible defines for us what to think about power. We don't start thinking about power in an American way and then come to the Trinity and say, well, it can't be like that because we know that if Jesus gave up his power, that makes him less powerful. Isn't that funny how the trad bros are actually having in the argument on the postmodern plane there that power oh, one, is the most important thing? Oh, 100%. Because they, they want to have it. Yes, and, and it's but a I think danger. Many of, of them, of, if they were to really think it through. Of course. And here, this is why we're trying to do this podcast, guys, because I think it's, it's ignorance of the Trinity for most mm. people. They just don't know what they're supposed to be believing. And that's that's why we're doing this here today. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I love talking about this subject. It's one of my one we of my favorites. Um, I was I was preaching there <laughs> yeah, for a minute, man, yeah, y'all. Yeah. But it's, hey, it's you're the one that signed up for this. So you subscribed, right? Thanks for subscribing. <laughs> uh, listen, guys, we're gonna be wrapping it up for today. Next time, we're gonna talk all about Jesus. There's a whole other set of doctrines for us to know about Jesus mm. related to the hypostatic union, mm-hmm. and it, we're gonna look at Christology and all the things that Zach was getting into. But I had to pull it back a little bit just <laughs> because it's hard to not talk about all of it at the same time. Right. But uh, we got another another episode coming up. Thank you all so much for listening. Don't forget Difference Makers is still available. I'm almost done with that audio book. So that's going to be out there very soon, but uh, be sure to go check that out and we will see you all soon on the Ironworks podcast. Thanks a million. Thanks guys.